Good evening, everybody. Um, tonight, I was delighted to see that um, FIFA have managed to plan their schedule around us at KMPC tonight. So it means any Costa Rican and Greek fans, you're very welcome here tonight with us. Um, but I'm sure there are fans of some other teams here tonight. Uh, Christoph in the front, of course, he's cheering on Germany. Uh, Sam at the back, he's cheering on England if he could. Uh, but of the preaching team, I feel a little bit left out because I don't have any natural allegiance or loyalty to any particular team in the World Cup. So in some ways, that gives me the luxury of choice. But I sort of find that also gives me a bit more pressure because I've got to make a good choice then. I want to make sure I pick a team that does well, that gets into the second round and you know, doesn't leave me without a team. So in the weeks before the World Cup, what I did, I, I looked at the form book, saw how the teams were doing, and I thought, okay, France are looking quite good here. Um, but I didn't want to commit. I waited till the first game. They won that 3-0. I was like, it's looking good. But still, I didn't tell too many people until I saw they won their second game 5-2, and then I came out as a, a France supporter. You see, I wanted to back a winner. I wanted to align myself with a team that get, doesn't get embarrassed. So if France lost their first game, probably I would have, right, okay, get to number two on the list. Um, might even have been Germany. But, <laughs> but with the stakes not that high, we still do that. All of us do things like that. We want, we want to be on the winning side. But what if the stakes are even higher? What if your life depends on it? So what if there's a revolution in the country and we're, we're trying to get rid of a dictator? See, that's a very real scenario for many people in the world today. Do I side with the revolution, but then risk, if it doesn't go well, the government you know, imprisons me or worse? Or do I just keep my lot with the government? Sure, I'll have to compromise my ideals some, but it's better than being killed. Or maybe I just wait and see. I, I want to support this revolution, but I wait and see if it's a success. If it's a success, I can then join in. If it's looking still a bit weak, if the people around me aren't, then I can just be quietly stepped back from it. See, whose side I'm on very much depends on who's doing better. When the stakes are high, I don't want to take stupid risks. So I ask, who do I think will win? Who looks the most impressive? Who is the strongest? You might have noticed in tonight's passage, we've only got a few verses but there's some very revolutionary type language in those verses. If you look at verse 22, I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. See, at this stage in history, Israel was under the royal throne of the foreign king Darius of Persia. See, these words that the Lord speaks through Haggai, they come across as revolutionary and they're quite subversive. You wouldn't want a copy of Haggai's book getting into the hands of Darius now. I, that, would, that, would be, that would be very bad. He wouldn't be pleased to hear these words. So you can imagine the Jews wanting to hush down these words. They've weighed up the odds. The mighty Persian Empire, you're stretching from Greece and Libya all the way to Afghanistan versus Israel, a ragged collection of leftovers after 70 years in exile, all they've got to their name is a ruined city. So the greatest military power the world had ever seen to that point versus some farmers and some priests with trumpets. So I think weighing up the odds, I'd be sent as a rubble. Okay, let's calm this talk of revolution. Let's not stir things up. We're going to make things worse for ourselves, make life difficult. 
You see, just calm this down. We'll compromise in our ideals a little bit. Seriously, it's not worth putting our heads above the parapet. Does that kind of language sound familiar to you? Not stir things up, just keep it quiet, hush down. Just go along with people, even if it compromises ideals. Living as a Christian, although there's more of us in Belfast than maybe in other places, we're still in the minority in most places. There are bigger influences out there. Work culture is a place that can be ruthless, it can be cutthroat, advancement at the expense of others. At a meeting, you want to point out that something the company's doing is highly unethical, but you're just one voice in a room of 20. Now, that's going to be an unsuccessful revolution to back. In social culture, image is king, how you come across others and appear to them, but it ties in so many, so many other lifestyle choices, things to do with money and sex. It's just so pervasive, so dominant in our culture. It comes at us from all angles, and it's hard to resist their pressure. Then there's the academic world. That seems so anti-Christian. Think Richard Dawkins at all. How can we stand up against men and women of such intellect like that? See, there are ways to live out there other than following Jesus. And they're just so much more in our face. They receive so much more popular support all around us. The career-centered life, the money-centered life, relationship-centered life, these are all held up. And the pressure of them we can feel upon us as others around us try to advance them. I guess the pressure it puts, for most part, is not to challenge it when we see such strong opposition. But quite often, the pressure put is to compromise with it. You see, living a God-centered life seems so weak in comparison. It seems like the wrong one to back. Or at least if we're going to back it, be quiet about it. Don't bring it up in certain situations. See, when you choose a side in a revolution, you want to be choosing the side. It's easier to choose the side of the strong rather than the weak. So in Haggai's time, the Jews, they definitely felt very weak. It's hard for them to take pride in themselves as a nation. They were once a very proud and great nation. But at this point after exile, they've lost control of their land and they're without a king. See, their identity as a nation that they could maybe bless and change the world, you know, through those promises to Abraham and to David. They don't believe those promises anymore because once their king left them, they thought God has cut this off. What does God have to say to such weak and under pressure people like the Jews in 520 BC? And what does he say to weak and under pressure people like us today? My first point I want us to see from this passage is that the stronger this world are more fragile than we first think. So Persia to the Jews just seemed incredibly strong. And in terms of of world history, up to that point it was. The biggest empire in the world to that point, 50 million people stretching over three, three million square miles. It imposed its culture, it imposed its language, across all these vastly diverse regions. It couldn't be resisted. In this generation, these Jews, they would have seen the great empire of Egypt fall. 
that have seen the great empire of Babylon fall all to the mighty Persia. And they were very smart operators. They knew how to control their territories. They knew how to keep peace, to pacify local rulers, and any rebellions were quashed highly efficiently. If anyone could keep a kingdom together, it would be the Persians. So starting a revolution against them, forget it. So why do we, what is going on with this revolutionary sounding message that I'll overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms? Well, verse 22 is maybe more carefully crafted than we maybe appreciate. So the language used here is very particular and it links this prophecy for the future to some very definite points in Israel's past. So the word overthrow and overturn they're used within it. But this, this word is a word that comes up again and again throughout the Old Testament. And when it does, it refers to the city of Sodom. So if you like, Sodom was the archetypal overthrow. So Sodom was a city with a culture of wickedness. Not just sexual promiscuity, but also they were arrogant, overfed, and didn't have concern for the poor, the Bible tells us. It's not too far off Western culture then. In this city, the righteous man Lot, he struggled against pressures and influences from all those around him. He was immersed in it, and as we read his story, you can see it. Sometimes he was able to resist, but sometimes it looks like he compromises. But this dominant culture that seems is going to literally overpower Lot, what does God do to it? In an instant, he overthrows it as his judgment falls upon it. Something so powerful and irresistible as this mighty culture of Sodom was so fragile as it disappears in an instant. The next reference, I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall. And this refers back in Israel's history to the Red Sea when the chariots of Israel were chasing Israel out of Egypt to bring them back. But when the sea opened up, Israel could pass through But when the Egyptian chariots came in, they were stuck. The chariots were stuck there and then God closed the sea and destroyed them, marking final victory over the tyrant Pharaoh. The great Pharaoh and his mighty chariots destroyed so easily without even a battle. And the final reference in the last few words, they'll fall each by the sword of his brother. It's a reminder of when the huge Midianite army had come and was camped in Israel. And it was there for years. It camped and it came every year and it subjected the people um, to slavery. It took their crops every year. But then there was a, a rebellion came up against them. 300 men with Gideon. And that, that's, a, that's a revolution that wouldn't be wise to back. But what happens? Gideon and his men, they make some noise. There's a bit of confusion. And the Midianites end up killing each other by their own sword. Now, you mightn't recognize or know the full details of of these episodes from Israel's history, but that's okay. The point is this. Israel has been up against irresistible forces before, culturally, militarily, politically. And in an instant, God can reveal just how fragile these supposed superpowers are. Israel should know from its history that earthly power is just so fragile. We can maybe see this a little from contemporary history too. 
The fall of the Soviet Union, that came about really quite rapidly. It seemed like such an irresistible force as it swept across Europe, but so, so quickly, within the space of a few years, it crumbled and fell. See, power today is still fragile. We can think of many examples of that. But when we're face to face with it, in the midst of it, we don't see that. It seems that the strong opposition to our our Christian faith, it it can't be overcome. Then we focus instead on the apparent power against us. We might get intimidated by the intelligent skeptic, or we don't want to go against the flow within our friendship group. Or we think standing up to our boss is something that we could never do. But God shows us that no power on earth is, secu- is as secure as it thinks. Nothing created is all-powerful. Only the creator God is all-powerful. You see, as soon as some shaking comes along, the fragility can be revealed. You may even find yourself with some gentle shaking, a bit of a conversation, some, some questions, that that aggressively anti-Christian colleague is more unsure about their own beliefs than you'd realized. Their aggression can actually be a front over their insecurity as they search for answers. I've met plenty of Christians whose testimony is actually exactly that. Or taking a stand at work against an unethical practice, you may find that your stand gently shakes your boss and their fragility is revealed. A friend of mine who's a teacher was told by his headmaster that he had to cheat on pupils' coursework. But he made a stand against this and it was incredibly difficult for him for a few months. But eventually the headmaster caved in and stopped pressurising any of his teachers to cheat. But of course, standing up isn't always successful like this. In fact, it can make things worse. It can make the opposition seem stronger as they go against it. And they don't shatter. But we've got to think bigger picture. Ultimately, this worldly strength is fragile. And even if it can stand up against some you know, gentle shaking from us, with anything substantial from God, it will quickly crumble. If God chooses to overthrow He can do it when he wills. And he's proved this in history. We've seen it again and again. And that's why he wants to remind us here in Haggai. So we need to remember that. So that any opposition we see doesn't seem completely irresistible. See, the strong are more fragile than any of us realize. Apparent strength has no reason for us not to live out with courage the life God has called us to live as followers of him. The second point I want us to see from this passage is that the weak that God chooses is more powerful than we first think. So we're nearly over halfway through the sermon. We haven't even talked about Zerubbabel yet. Zerubbabel, his name has appeared throughout the book. You might have heard it. Um, And he's the civil leader of Israel at this time. But this prophecy, this final prophecy in Haggai, this one is spoken directly to him. And it came on the very same day as that last prophecy that that Christoph read for us, all about blessing. So God is somehow linking blessing with Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel's name means seed of Babylon, so-called because that's where he was born. He'd never actually 
he wasn't born um, in Israel. He was born in exile. But he must have done well for himself there because the Persians allowed him to be the governor of Israel. So he led 42,000 people back from Persia to, to Jerusalem. So he was the civil leader, but of course he was completely answerable to King Darius. So he's, in effect, he's just a bit of a puppet. So on paper, he doesn't stand out that much. In charge of 42,000 people, he doesn't have much clout on a political stage. It's a bit like the mayor of Balamina trying to mix it with Barack Obama. But there is more to Zerubbabel than meets the eye. In fact, Zerubbabel has something that King Darius doesn't have. See, one other fact we learn from Haggai is that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. Now, to help us understand what is significant about this, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, page 965. So just over a few pages. And this is the genealogy. It's listed from Abraham through to Christ. And if you see in verse 6, we start tracing from King David and we go down the line of kings of Israel until verse 11, the last king of Judah, Jeconiah, or you'll see in your footnote, also Jehoiakim, that's his name. For many, that is where they thought the kingly line of David finished. When exile came and Jeconiah was taken away. However, Jeconiah had a son. See verse 12. Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. You see, Zerubbabel was more than just some appointed governor. Zerubbabel was from the kingly line of David, from the chosen line through which God said he would bless, bless the whole world and establish an everlasting kingdom. In verse 23, back in Haggai, when God says Zerubbabel is chosen, God is saying, I've not forgotten the promises I made to King David. You're my chosen one with the kingly line. So all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God have been waiting for a Messiah to come. Someone to fully deliver them. It's interesting, I was out with the Sunday club together um, to, um, earlier today. And that's what they've been learning. They've been tracing through the whole Old Testament and seeing this line, waiting for the deliverer, waiting for the Messiah to come. See, God had promised this Messiah, he would come through Judah first, and then it narrowed in, it was going to be through the kingly line of David, and we followed this line down. But then exile came, and for the people of Israel, it seemed to evaporate. But God preserved the line of David through exile, so that he can keep his promise to them. He doesn't look like a king, but here he is. Here's Zerubbabel. So with this declaration that Zerubbabel is chosen by God, all Israel can know that God's plan of deliverance, that's still on. That's still going to happen. His promise through the line of David hasn't faded at all, and God's chosen stands before him. So Zerubbabel, he's got more to him than we first thought. He's chosen by God. He's in the line of David. But also, if you've still got Haggai in front of you, the Lord declares, 
I'll take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and I'll make you like my signet ring. See, a signet ring was used by a king or some other dignitary to press into a wax seal, to make their mark on it, maybe on a letter or a document, to let everyone know that this here, this is my work. And that's what God is saying about Zerubbabel. Through you, And your work, what I'm asking you to do, people are going to see my stamp. See, Zerubbabel, the deliverer from exile. He's the leader of the people. He's in charge of protecting them from the hostile neighbors. All these things that Zerubbabel does point to God, to his deliverance, to his leading and guiding, and his provision and protection. But there's more to this signet ring. You see, it's a thing of beauty. A thing that's a cherished item. See, the more impressive the ring, well, the more impressive the king. And also this this is a term, wearing it like a signet ring. It's a term of intimacy. It's actually a term that's used in the love poetry of the Song of Solomon. Always with you. It goes with you everywhere. And it wraps around you. There's a definite intimacy to Zerubbabel's being chosen by God, to God saying, I choose you. I'm going to wear you like a signet ring. It says, you are always mine. I'm with you wherever you go. And I'm going to do my work through you. But the greatest significance comes when when we realize what's been said to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, as he's referred to in Matthew Remember, he was the last king of Judah just over 70 years previously. And this is what was said to him. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I'd still pull you off. See, it's a very evocative image. We've described the, the, the significance and the, of the intimacy of being described as a, a signet ring. Now I imagine the hurt of that being pulled off and cast aside. This was God's rejection of the king of Judah. And this is what scarred and hurt the people of Judah. That's why they thought God is finally done with us. That's why they thought David's line is finished. But that's not the case. God has greater plans for David's line through the apparent weakness of Zerubbabel. See, he's putting the ring back on. See, for the people overhearing this conversation, the leader they once thought of as a bit weak, you know, the town mayor figure, they now see him in a different light. They're beginning to see something of God's chosen king. Now follow him with confidence. They can follow this weak man. They've got the confidence to do that. Because he's the one through whom God will bring deliverance. In a revolution, you, you wouldn't back the weaker side unless God has said it says through him that deliverance will come. So knowing this, the Jews can be secure in their identity. They can live out their unique identity as the people of God. They can carry on living the distinctive lives even when all this opposition around them seems so overwhelming. Because they know they've got something among them 
that the opposition doesn't have. God's chosen one, God's signet ring, through whom deliverance will come. Now, twice in Haggai, we've been told that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And Christoph mentioned about that a bit. It's quite a scary image. Unless you know you've got God's chosen one with you, you'll know that you're secure from the shaking as long as they're with you. God's not going to leave his chosen one. Now, a question that can maybe be asked is why do they stop here? Why do they just settle for, you know, being able to live under pressure? Why don't they go further and actually physically start this revolution? After all, as God said here, he's going to shake the nations. They've got the chosen king, Zerubbabel, among them. Do they have you know, this confidence of the ring bearer as they march upon the enemy gate? Sorry, I had to get one Lord of the Rings reference in tonight. Um, <laughs> actually, this is one with the benefit of history. We might be a bit confused about There's such great promises, the kingly line, everything seems to be coming together. But after this moment, we don't really hear about Zerubbabel again. He just drops off the map. No revolution revolution came. Israel remained in the control of the Persians until they were in the control of the Greeks, until they were in the control of the Romans. No actual Davidic king was established, just a short-lived puppet governor. So was Zerubbabel just a false start? Is God not really that serious about delivering his people? No, Zerubbabel fulfilled his purpose perfectly. These things were never meant to be fulfilled completely in Zerubbabel. The clue is the phrase, on that day. See, these things point to another day, on down the line. So in, in Zerubbabel, what is being said is the Davidic line is still alive Keep looking down it. Keep carrying on. And it may be in a different form than you thought it would come. No great armies or no great palaces like with Zerubbabel. But the line is alive and that means the hope of a Messiah is alive. See, the true chosen signet ring is another few generations away. If you see that genealogy in Matthew, it doesn't stop with Zerubbabel. It continues down for a few more generations to another man who was weak who didn't look like much in the eyes of the world he wasn't the type of king that people expected he wasn't, he wasn't put in a palace he didn't have the political power the military might he didn't have academic credentials or lovely appearance none of the things that are important to their culture or to our culture did he possess but he was from the line of David and he was God's chosen his signet ring and that's our final point the apparently weak Jesus is our powerful chosen king see Jesus is the signet ring whose beauty reflected God perfectly he bears the mark of God the Father and makes his imprint When we read what Jesus did and the work that he did, we're seeing what God is doing. It's got God's seal all over it. And then there's the intimacy between the two. It's so complete because they are are one God. But also it's when this king comes. This is something Zerubbabel couldn't do. It was when this king comes that the world would shake. 
Throughout the Bible, God's presence makes the world shake, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically. And in Jesus, we see the same. At his death, an earthquake shook the land, literal. But also through his death and resurrection, a new shaking took place, a shaking of the world order. The King, Jesus Christ, triumphant over death and all opposition, all who stood against him. That was proved when he rose from the dead. And all power and authority, that was given to him. He was God's chosen king. From now on, all kings are answerable to him. Jesus is the one they've got to bow down to. Jesus is the one all of us have to bow down to. So when Haggai says, on that day, that's the day he's talking about. When Christ shook the earth in victory. The day of deliverance that the Jews longed for. But it also refers to one other day, a day that is yet in the future for us, a future day when the great shaking of heaven and earth will take place, and that's Judgment Day. I think by thinking about Judgment Day, that helps us put into perspective our own situation. So we feel like being a Christian is weak in this world. We feel the pressure from much stronger influences around us that get more publicity that everyone else seems to be doing. To buckle from this pressure seems easy. Compromise is never too far away. It's like, who do we back in a revolution? Sometimes it's difficult to follow our heart and fight for the revolution when the opposition is so strong against. But remember, their apparent power is more fragile than we think. At absolute most, all they can do can last for a lifetime. But of no influence come Judgment Day, where God will overthrow and bring justice, just like he has done in the past. We're to take confidence from that. And secondly, as weak as we are, we have a king, who although others see him as weak and others write him off as such, he is the chosen king of God. He is our chosen king who will lead us, who will guide us, who will protect us, who will provide for us. Everything we need to stand against opposition is found in him. Zerubbabel brought this to Israel amid circumstances that weren't perfect. And today our circumstances aren't perfect. We've been talking throughout this series about God building his kingdom. If you like, we're still in the construction phase It's not perfectly finished. The kingdom isn't fully here yet. There's still large pockets that resist the building work. But amidst what aren't always perfect conditions, the building site, we've got that comforting king with us, that one who gives us all our strength. But we know one day that this kingdom will be complete that all strong opposition will be completely shattered. There'll be nothing that can stand. Now, twice in the book of Haggai, God promises he's going to shake the earth. And that won't fully happen until Judgment Day. But we need not be afraid of this shaking. Because if we follow Jesus, we're aligning ourselves with the unshakable kingdom. We're aligning ourselves with God's chosen king. We know we're secure if we're with him. So we don't need to fear opposition that comes our way for being a Christian. 
we can have the strength to stand up and not to succumb, to live as followers of King Jesus. Because living under any other rule, the rule of image, the rule of popularity or of money, none of these things can stand up to shaking. But on the day of shaking, being in Jesus' kingdom is all that counts. Let me remind us of the verse in Hebrews. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me pray.